I actually think that on balance, sex bots are going to be good for us and good for society. And I don't think we need to panic. But I also don't want to dismiss all the people who have concerns about it. You're listening to Good Is In The Details. I'm Gwendolyn Dolsky. And I'm Rudy Sallow. And this is the podcast where we learn more about what we didn't know we didn't know. In the spirit of Socrates. Right, Rudy? Yes. That's where we're going with. I'm always pleasantly surprised to hear our tagline. (laughs) It just does. I think people don't realize how long it took us to get that. And now that we've actually nailed it down, you've nailed it down. I still fumble and stumble and still can't do it. But if I hear it a thousand more times, like like a robot, speaking of robots, I think I'll be able to spit it back out. Well, you know, this upcoming episode or this one that we're introducing, it's you know, there was a lot of curiosity about what is a sex bot, and we're going to get into that. We talk a little bit about Ex Machina, which we did the episode with the two philosophers from Europe, right? Like their podcast, uh, Philosophers Drink Beer and Discuss Film. And that was a really cool episode where we talked about Ex Machina and all the implications about AI. And for this episode, we have Professor Neil MacArthur. He is the director of the Center for Professional and Applied Ethics at the University of Manitoba. And I became familiar with his work because of an article that he, or an essay he wrote, rather, in this book that's a collection of essays on robot sex, social and ethical implications. And his essay specifically is called The Case for Sex Bots. So we have a nice discussion with him about all the implications of this new technology that it's not just about the technology, but it's making us think more about sex in general and relationships and who has access to this and what is okay. And we've got moral and legal discussions coming up. It's a really interesting conversation. Yeah. Just really quick. We don't really talk about sex that much because I won't allow it. So if there's any clients or people that are sensitive out there, we talk about- um, I only bring up the SCX. Of course you do. Because you're, and that's great because Mm -hmm. SEX sells. Uh, I just- you know, I'm very, very careful about it. But it goes beyond just the sex bots. It also talks about relationships with yeah. with, with robots and the utility of them and how they can, how they can fill gaps that are ever present in our society for the elderly, for the lonely, for people out there that are missing something. And so we really focus on the good of AI, the possible good of robots. Sure, sexual satisfaction is one component that's discussed, but we talk about more than just that. And even the professor himself says, yeah, you know, to be honest with you, I use the sex pot discussion because, you know, it's clickbait. It gets people to look at it. But his, his analysis goes way above and beyond just sexual relations with artificial beings. Yeah. And I think one of the interesting things for me as, you know, one of the classes that I teach at Cal Poly is ethical considerations in technology. And I always talk about how technology is really a representation of what is possible and of our values that design is not in and of itself just a thing, but it's really a vision that somebody brings about. And with the discussion about sex bots, it is making us call into question the value that is behind it. And I think one of the things is that pleasure and sex, it seems very bizarre, especially in American culture, that it's either we don't talk about it at all, or it's hypersexualized. There are these two spectrums. So this idea of technology combined with sex um, is making us take another look at the value of that as part of a healthy existence. 
which I think is interesting. And we do talk about some of the cons. I have to admit, there's some things that I am a bit hesitant about, but Professor MacArthur addresses them beautifully. He has a re- he's extremely thoughtful, and it's just a very cool episode. Agreed. And, and you know, much like you were saying, society is either hypersexualized or you know, we talk too much about it or we don't want to talk about it at all. We, I play a little bit of that role here, I think. Mm-hmm. I, try, I, I try several times throughout the episode to, to tone down the sex talk. But, You're like, what about the rights of the AI? Yeah, right, I did. I mean, we, I mean no, really. You, yeah. You nailed it because we talked about, we do talk about legal implications of it and the rights of the AI and the feelings of the AI, which I know sounds ridiculous, but take it within context. It'll make sense within this discussion. Yeah. All right. Let's talk sex bots. Robots. Let's talk robots. Let's talk robots. Okay. Fine, Rudy. Let's talk robots. Sex bots, robot sex. <laughs> what are we doing? No, let's just talk robots. Okay. All right. Some people will have sex with these robots, but let's just talk robots. Sure. Okay. All right. This is an episode about robots. <laughs> okay. Neil, welcome to the show. Could you tell us a bit about your background in philosophy before we get started? For sure. So I started out actually as a studying the history of philosophy. I did a thesis on David Hume. Oh, um, okay. And then I gradually moved into becoming an ethicist. I started getting more interested in contemporary problems, contemporary ethics. And it wasn't a research problem initially, but I started teaching sexual ethics. And I found that students were really interested in these topics. And it was, you know, it was not so long ago, but it was a time when there was just not a lot being written or uh, really people thinking about questions of sexual ethics. And so I started doing research on it. So that's how I kind of ended up where I am now. I guess just to step back, I actually, uh, my PhD is from the University of Southern California, and I'm originally from, from the Canadian prairies, from Regina. You're from Regina? I am indeed. It's crazy. I, I'm sorry. I don't mean to be going off on tangent. It's just I've been meeting <laughs> several people from there. I'm I'm working with a company that's based out of Regina, and I've never heard of it before. Um, <laughs> and so it's just, that's awesome. That's cool. I'm sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> Um, so Neil, as I told you, I have assigned this essay that you have sure. on the case for sex bots to my philosophy of sex and love class, and the students really do enjoy it. I think for our listeners, I think what I want to back up and ask is, just so we're clear, what is yep. a sex bot? And then how does philosophy come into the picture when we're talking about sex bots? Well, so I, I should say, by the way, I think that the ethical issues actually go a little bit beyond sex bots to include things like virtual reality and so on. I think you can, you can touch on a lot of the same issues. But I will say, for the purposes of definition, a, a sex bot is basically something that has some kind of physical incarnation that you can interact with physically. I don't want to be more explicit than that. And, and it, it does have some kind of artificial intelligence. So it's more than a doll. Okay. Um, it's more than Siri and it's more than a doll. How about that? It's got a little bit of both. It's got some body and it's got some mind. Just, just to, since this is a podcast and we're trying to provide, I know it's difficult because this is all audio, but let's try to provide a little bit of visual related to it. The movie Ex Machina yeah. and the beings that were in that, were those sex bots? So as we're talking here, are we, are we talking about you know, those beings that were in that movie? For sure. I think that, that those definitely qualify. I think when you, talk, when you look at the movie Ex Machina, you've got embodied beings with artificial intelligence that are artificial beings and that people have intimate relationships with. I actually would even consider, if you think about Blade Runner 2049, that was sort of a holographic sex spot, but I think that would still qualify. I mean, I think you can take a fairly generous definition 
Uh, I think we've seen a lot of, uh, you know, Westworld, obviously, there's lots of sex bots in there where you've got uh, artificial beings, but those are also, uh, you know, movies have the advantage of being able to look far into the future. And I think right now, there are some things that do qualify as sex bot. I mean, there's this, there's this thing called Roxy that sort of moves around a little bit. Whitney Cummings had a sex bot of herself built. I don't know if you've seen her special, but... Uh, but, you know, right now, the technology is actually pretty primitive. It's, I mean, if, if we know from talking to Siri that it's hard to get artificial intelligence that's very interactive. It's also hard to design robots that can move like humans. It's incredibly hard to get a human or get to get a robot rather to walk like a human. So, you know, we're, we're quite a ways off. We're quite a ways off, actually, in terms of what I think we would really consider sex bots in the sense that it's going to start raising some real ethical issues. Because I think the ethical issues arise when people start to form connections or attachments or start to feel that this is some kind of something more than just a sort of novelty experience. That's where I think you start to get into the ethics of it. That's something that I'm really interested in is what is the role that philosophy could play? So what are some of the questions that come up? And I would imagine that, and you brought this up in your essay, but for some branch of thinking, particularly uh, religious doctrines that don't look at pleasure as a good in and of itself and as problematic, that that might even be a non-starter. But for people who do not see pleasure as bad in and of itself and part of the human experience and that can be a good, then what are some of the questions that would come up? Because I also noticed in your essay, you said sex bots are here. This is a thing. So it's not a matter of should we have them or shouldn't we have them? It's a matter of they're on their way. There's a version of them now. And so how do we deal with that? So what are some of the ethical questions with the use of them? So I think the first thing, and the first thing that usually comes up in my class when people want to talk about the ethics of this is, well, how is this not just a sex toy? How is this different from a sex toy? Because you said, well, you know, if you don't, you're going to object to them if you don't see pleasure as a good. And that's true. And a lot of people who don't see pleasure, you know, who see physical pleasure as suspect or as needing to be linked to some sort of intimate human relationship, they're going to have trouble with sex toys too. Mm -hmm. But I think, I think when one of the interesting things about sex bots is they're, you know, they're, they're more than sex toys, but less than human. And so they exist in this sort of weird sort of middle realm where we form attachments to them but they don't necessarily reciprocate in the same way that other human beings do. And so I think the reason we want to debate it ethically is we want to ask, is there something morally problematic about a creature or an entity that is not fully human and that does not fully reciprocate our feeling, but is nevertheless more than just a toy in some way. That is, we form some kind of perception of it or connection with it that we wouldn't necessarily form just with our sex toy. I would imagine one of the questions is, would that interfere then with other human connections? So, I mean... Because part of the way in which one grows as a person is the way in which they are responding to another. That's the way that you grow. That's the way that you become more loving, more caring, more empathy. So if you're interacting with a non-sentient being, then how does that person have this opportunity to grow? I think that is definitely something people worry about. And people worry that, you know, sex bots provide us with relationships that are very easy. I mean, 
relationships are difficult. People are difficult. And as you say, it's by dealing with people in all their complexity and difficulty that we become, in many cases, better human beings. I actually, I mean, I will lay my cards on the table here right now. I, you know, my, my essay is called The Case for Sex Bots. And mm-hmm. I actually think that on balance, sex bots are going to be good for us and good for society. And I don't think we need to panic. But I also don't want to dismiss all the people who have concerns about it. I think that there are real concerns, and I think you've just put your finger on one of them. I think you've expressed it really well. I would remind people who have that concern, though, that two things. I think one is that I don't think people who have sex bots are necessarily just going to be sitting in their basement with their sex bot. I think that we have a caricature that is sometimes in our minds of, you know, I've seen articles that have covered some of my research. As you know, expert says that in the future, uh, lonely men will just want to have sex with robots. And I don't really think that's the future I'm envisioning at all. I'm envisioning a future where people may have sex bots, but they will also continue to have you know, normal human relationships, both uh, romantic and otherwise. They may integrate sex bots into their relationships in various ways. And I, I mean, I really think we forget too how many relationships people have that are already, I guess you could say, non-reciprocal in various ways. I mean, people feel very connected to their pets, which I don't think is, I don't think there's anything wrong with that, but I don't think their pets are reciprocating in quite the same way. Well, it's <laughs> funny you should mention that. <laughs> okay. We were, we, on our last episode, I just learned that uh, there's some studies going on about <laughs> animal cognition. And uh, Gwen put me on the spot because she told me spiders have feelings. So I'm, I'm sorry, I, I have a, I've got I, a bone I, to pick with you. <laughs> well, I, I'm not gonna, I'm, I'm not gonna say that spiders don't have feelings and I don't, I wouldn't deny that pets have feelings. I wouldn't even deny that they have uh, connections to their owners. But if you're asking, is that the sort of complex human relationship that, you know, I mean, when we talk about human relationships that allow us to grow as people and that challenge us and so on, I mean, I don't think that, you know, people's relationship with their fish or even with their cat is quite on that level. But, you know, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying it's unhealthy at all. And I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with it. I just think that, you know, it doesn't. And in fact, that's precisely my point. If we don't worry about those kinds of relationships, I think we shouldn't worry about sex, but relationships. But I mean, people have relationships also with their sports teams. They have relationships with their cars that are, you know, go beyond what I would consider attractive to me. But, um, But I don't think we worry about that. And I think the other thing to remember is that lots of people just are single. They may be asexual or they may just, you know, not be at a stage in their relationship where, or a stage in their lives where they want a relationship. And, you know, I don't think we necessarily panic about that. I think that that can be a sign that they have emotional issues. There are people who avoid relationships due to emotional issues, but there are lots of people who don't. I'm fascinated by this topic for many, many, many reasons. Most of them are are for serious reasons. One of my very first favorite um, Twilight Zone episodes is called The Lonely. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that one, Neil, but that actually oh. addresses the topic of falling in love with a robot. And this was back in the late 1950s. In fact, wow. it was the first Twilight Zone effort, episode that was ever filmed. So it was the OG episode. And so this topic of the relationship between human beings and robots has been explored, you know, for going on for forever. And as a Twilight Zone geek, I have to fall in love with it. You said you think that this relationship could be a good thing. And you touched upon, there are a lot of single people out. And there's a lot of, <laughs> there's a lot of elderly people 
out there. And what I, what I have been seeing and what I've been studying with the future of AI, not only just the future, but the present of it, there is some hope that for the elderly that are alone and they may have some mental incapacity issues, the answer very well might be a robot. So I'm trying to divorce the sexual aspect of it. I know we'll talk more about sex with robots, but I'm more fascinated with, with the topic of falling in love with a robot, kind of like what you were saying, and whether or not you know, what are the ethics of that? Have you done some exploration into the good beyond what you were saying is why you think they, they can be a good thing? Uh, yeah, I think that, I mean, I, you know, I confess that I talk about sex with robots, it gets people's attention, but because it, it doesn't quite have the same uh, clickbaity headline as, you know, intimacy with robots. But I think what we're really talking about is all forms of intimacy with robots. People may choose to physically consummate that intimacy, but I think you're absolutely right. The questions all arise in an interesting way when you're talking about any sort of emotional connection. And there was a recent New York article that really, I think, highlighted how far along we are in that process, that there are already governments state governments, local governments, who are providing robot intimate companions to elderly people. So, you know, I mean, we, I don't think we're quite there as far as sex robot technology goes, but I think that as far as intimate companion goes, I think, yeah, we're, I mean, the, the train has not only left the station, I think it's three or four stations down the line. I think one of the interesting things is that this question is also forcing us to talk about the function of sex. Sorry, Rudy, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to the sex part. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll go ahead and quiet right away. Yeah, Neil, just so you, this, it's not a running joke on this show. It's just sometimes I don't host this show if the topic gets too sexual because I, I do actually have a day job with, with clients that care right. about that. So Gwen, just reminding you that I do still have a day job. So just yes, you know, I will. be, be don't careful. Worry. Don't worry. I'll, I'll, I'll leave out the good parts. So, But I think that what, what this question is having us examine is is the role of sex in our lives. And that's what I think is really interesting is that it's not so much about the sex bot, but it's forcing us with this technology to think about, you know, what is the role of pleasure? And that not only that, but for a long time, um, because of the role of religion in people's lives, that we have associated sex with a committed relationship and with the purpose of having children. And it has not been viewed as having these other potential qualities as good mental health, as a way to, I don't know, get a good night's sleep, as a way to connect with somebody, or as a way to just experience that pleasure that there's all of these benefits from the orgasm for both men and for women. And that's what I think is probably maybe culturally one of the issues is that we're going to have to take a look at sex as not just having a function of having children, but as a function of living in a healthy and loving and exciting and pleasurable manner. I think that's dead on. I absolutely take all those points. I think that was really beautifully put. And I think another thing, there's, there's uh, quite a long sort of history of discussion in the philosophical literature about sex and reciprocity, about whether it even counts as sex if there isn't another person who's involved in an equally intimate way. So, so there's some people who just say that if you're just seeking physical pleasure, you're not even really having sex. They kind of want to define pleasure out of, well, not define pleasure out of sex, but define sex in such a, in a more limited way, such that the pure pursuit of pleasure doesn't even really count as true sex. So I think that one of the things that's helpful is to sort of push us towards understanding just how, you know, how wide a scope there can be for, yeah, sexual, I guess, pleasure and sexual pursuit. 
I'm starting to wonder, is there a difference between the appeal of the sex bot for genders? Does that register at all? It does for sure. I think it's, it's really important to talk about the way in which this conversation has become gendered because I think that right now it's mostly associated with men. Mm-hmm. And I think th- that's just because of, you know, the way that the technology has gone so far. So the companies that are designing them right now are mostly designing them to look like, well, to, mostly designing them to be female and mostly designing them to look like this very stereotypical version of a woman, which is, you know, sort of a, a, a Kate Devlin uses the term pornified fembots, right? Like they just look like these ridiculous porn stars. And I think that that's a real shame because I think that when you look at sex, sexual technology more generally to include sex toys, it's mostly women who use sex toys. I mean, mm-hmm. women, women already have, I think, a very healthy and positive relationship to sexual technology. And so I think that if you design the technology with women in mind and in a way that is actually responsive to their needs, I think that this ceases to be such a sort of loaded issue as far as gender goes. And I think that requires us to think more imaginatively because not only does that might mean that, you know, we, we design more male sex bots. We design more sex bots of women who don't look, you know, like these ridiculous porn stars. And I also think it it may mean that we want to start thinking beyond gender and start thinking beyond even sort of, you know, anthropomorphism. There's people working on all kinds of really imaginative designs for what you could broadly call sex bot technology that aren't even human and really in any recognizable way. There's one kind of crazy idea that was for this device. It's just sort of these pillows that just kind of wrap around you and give you this full body sensual experience. And I think that, you know, if we start thinking in those kinds of more imaginative terms, then I think we can stop just thinking of it as being not just designed for men, but designed for a certain type of man who wants this kind of porn star in his closet. And I think then we'll have a much healthier conversation. Yeah, I think something that was on my mind, it actually is, I'm thinking about the explosion of pornography, the accessibility of it, and how it's you know, just all over the internet. And we really have to have discussions about it for younger and younger children, because if you don't talk about it, then they will find it first at younger and younger ages. And one of the things that has happened when it comes to pornography is that because it's all over the place and it's actually getting to be more violent, that pornography, instead of assisting a relationship, it's actually replacing relationships where people cannot get aroused in the right regular type of intimate setting because they have been exposed to so much pornography. And so I'm wondering with the sex bots, if they're looking like this pornographic image of a woman, if it wouldn't make it more difficult then to go into the real world and to actually experience intimacy with the women who, you know, I mean, has, has a body with, with all the jiggles, <laughs> with all the, with all the imperfections. And if it would be difficult for somebody to be aroused because he's been accustomed to objectifying or reducing a woman to just that thing. Yeah, I don't think you can talk about the ethics of sex bots without talking about the ethics of sex bot design. Okay. I think that, and I, I think that it, we can actually apply some of the lessons that we've learned from pornography, both positively and negatively, because I think you're right. I think that we've seen uh, a lot of pornography promoting a very, you know, a, a very sort of unhealthy view of sexuality. And so I think that we can learn from that not to make the same mistakes. And I think what we've learned about pornography is that it can be 
a very positive contribution towards a healthy culture around sexuality if we involve the right people and if we follow the right principles. So, you know, if you actually involve women in the making of pornography, if you make sure that you have diverse voices that are included, that you include people who don't just look like a single ridiculous body image, that you can create an entirely different kind of pornography. And I think that we can learn those same lessons when it comes to sex bot design. We can involve people of not just women, but people of different genders, people who are non-binary, people of different body types, and so on. And I think that if they're involved in the process and they see themselves reflected in the process, uh, then you can have a completely different kind of technology. That's so interesting. You'd mentioned that there were some legal issues. I know you're interested in the moral issues, but what would be a legal issue? Well, I mean, one of, one of the things that I think is really interesting is what you do about sex bots that look like real people. And it's going to force us to ask ourselves, I mean, robots in general that look like real people, it's going to force us to ask ourselves how much ownership we have over our own images. I think that the first thing that's going to happen is you're going to have sex bots that look like famous people. Oh, wow. And- I don't mean to interrupt there, but I, I think that's illegal. Any image that's uh, made in, in, in the li- image and likeness of somebody and it's sold for a commercial purpose, assuming that that person isn't dead, I don't know if that's the exception, but you know, death does address it. I don't think that's legal, but I hear your point. If it's already a public figure, like a, I don't know, a politician or something like that, what what, what is that? I, I don't know. I, I am or a lawyer. an actress or a model. That's really creepy to think about. If you can imagine being on the receiving end of it and then you find out somebody made a sex bot in your image. That's super creepy. I mean, I'm not an IP lawyer, so I'm sorry if I'm wrong about that. But to me, that smells of being illegal right away. I think I again I'm not I'm not a lawyer at all but I know there are some some cases that have gone in various directions and the, the, I think the case law that would end up applying is probably what we've the precedents probably are what we've seen around video games uh, Vanna White sued a video game maker there was a football player who sued a video game maker because they included them in one of their video games and I think you've had some different kinds of decisions and then there was actually a there was a Steve Jobs doll or a bobblehead or something where Apple tried to shut it down. But I think we're going to get into some difficult gray areas. And I think we're going to have to figure out, you know, it's going to depend a lot on how it's marketed and how much it looks like. I mean, you know, it just coincidentally looks a bit like Brad Pitt. I mean, what's going to happen? So, and then I think there's going to be, you know, private people. I mean, you know, the people are going to make bots that look like their exits. And so I think that, yeah, I think we're going to have to maybe think a lot about what our laws look like going forward. That's for sure, uh, for sure a legal question. I think uh, we're also going to have to ask uh, what is going to be the age at which we allow people to have these kinds of robots. I think, you know, we have already different ages around consent to sex, but I don't think we have much case law around the age of consenting to have sex with a robot. So we're going to have to figure that out. Uh, I think probably the most difficult and really hard issue to grapple with is the issue of whether it should be legal to have, you know, robots that look like children. Yeah, I brought that I brought that up with my students because I'd heard this debate. So I'm curious what you think about it. But that for if you look at pedophiles as having a like a mental disability, there's no other way to get out of it. And that this would be a solution for that to satisfy that urge. And that might be helpful. And then there's the argument that no, satisfying that urge is actually making it, propelling it and making it worse. Where do you stand on that issue? 
You know, I, I, I struggle with it because I've looked at a lot of the research and unfortunately the research just goes in every different direction. I don't think there's one sort of conclusion that people can, can draw. I would say at the very least, at the very least, if we are going to make it permissible to do this on the view that maybe it will help people with pedophilic urges, I think that we need to make sure that it happens in a regulated environment. I don't think we just want to put that out there in the open market. So you would want it, for instance, to be part of you know a course of therapy. You'd want them to be under the supervision of a therapist and you'd want to have some you know some ongoing observance of, of what the effects might be i don't think we just want to throw these out into the into the world and kind of see what happens because i do think there's some real risks for sure i think also apart from the risks i think there's um you know, what you might call some symbolic harms. I mean, I think that a lot of people would find it very upsetting just to know these are being sold and being distributed. And I don't think we want children uh, knowing that just we don't want children being on the internet and finding for sale some yeah. sort of child sex bot. I think we want to, you know, make sure that we protect them from that. So I think, you know, at the very least, we want to really control the distribution and use of them. Is there a country that is ahead on this uh, on this issue where you can see that this is going to be mainstream first, a culture that's more accepting of it? Of sex bots in general? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I think I think Japan is always tends to be <laughs> tends to be at the cutting edge. You know, they already have sex doll brothels that apparently the hourly rate is the same as for a human sex worker. Hmm. And they also, they also just are sort of, you know, they're more comfortable with technologies and with these kind of, I guess you'd say, parasocial relationships with technology. You know, you hear about them having these relationships. I mean, they've had Tamagotchis forever before we did. And people just seem to have, you know, a comfort with having some sort of relationship with these artificial beings in Japan that is interesting. I also think that for whatever reason, I guess it's just, you know, they're a very tech savvy society, but the Russians seem very interested in this issue. And so I notice a lot of coverage of this in Russia and I notice a lot of uh, people seem interested. in. So you're in Canada. What is the feeling there about it? You know, so I will say, I will say by contrast. So I think in the U.S., I notice a lot of the coverage tends to be a little bit sensationalist, and I think in Canada there may be we're maybe a little more just staid about all these kinds of conversations, which is maybe good. I think that we're maybe a little more comfortable talking about sex and technology, but I wouldn't want to get too arrogant about it. I think that we're you know we're not that different than the United States. I would say. I mean, people. I get the feeling people are interested in this. They think it's a little weird. Uh, and I think some of the issues are fascinating, but I, I can't, I can't say I'd notice a huge difference between Canada and New York. I still, I just, I, I just keep thinking about <laughs> the reciprocity and the, I, I mean, I didn't, I don't think of it in terms of right or wrong. I'm just thinking that that's part of what would make a sexual interaction good is that kind of a connection. That's just personally, is that that, that, in, that interaction with somebody, I don't think that I could ever close myself off from the emotion or I've also read that women tend to part of their turn, part of the turn on for women sexually is when they are desired. And so it seems hard to get a, a robot to do that because women, of course, you know, are different when it comes to being turned on. Sorry, Rudy, am I getting too close to what we're not allowed the clients? No, you know? no, no, no. You're, okay, no okay. you're, you're fine. Trust me, I'll, I'll hang up when that does. <laughs> when, that, when, when, that, when that happens, I will I will drop the call. Don't don't worry yeah. about it. But then but then I also think I mean it's something else that you that you've brought up that I thought was was really interesting because I'm in a different position than let's say 
um, let's say somebody who has a disability and sex or relationships is not really part of their life, but you don't want to deny somebody this experience of pleasure and that the sex bots would be uh, almost humanitarian in that sense. What do you yeah, think? I, I think that's a really, I think that's a really good point. I think that, you know, it, it always amazes me that we talk so much about, and rightly so, so much about various kinds of inequality. We talk about inequality of income, access to education, access to healthcare. I mean, inequality has become such a part of our conversation. We don't talk much about inequality when it comes to access to sex. And I think there are huge inequalities when it comes to access to sex. I think depending on people's life experience, depending on their geographical position, you know, I think about the uh, S-Town podcast about that poor guy who was, you know, this oh, gay yeah. man, gay man living in the middle of nowhere in the, in, where was it, South Carolina, where he just had no hope of meeting partners. I mean, lots of people, are, but you know, there he was taking care of his mother. I mean, he was living in this town doing the right thing and it was making him so lonely that, you know, it was tragic. And so, yeah, I mean, there's lots of people who are just, you know, cut, you know, there's lots of people who aren't beautiful people living in New York and Los Angeles, right? There's lots of people who are cut off in all kinds of ways from sex and intimacy. And so, you know, I think those of us who are in relationships or who have access to relationships can kind of forget how much inequality there is. What is another, let's see, we've talked about some of the possible moral and legal problems from your research, what are some other benefits or good things? I mean, since since you you know make the case that they are here and this is something that we're going to have to deal with, what are some other positive things about this? Well, so one of the things I don't think we've talked about yet is just how these could potentially be integrated into people's relationships. Mm-hmm. I think that you know we talk a lot about how they could threaten to undermine people's relationships, but I also think they could they could potentially strengthen people's relationships in various ways. I think that there's almost in any relationship there's going to be some period where one of the partners wants more sex than the other and that can cause tension i think any sex therapist will tell you those sorts of desire discrepancies cause all kinds of problems in relationships people often have affairs out of a sheer need for variety and so i think having a sex bot as part of the relationship might you know might help that you know might help some of those issues people sometimes want to explore outside the relationship not because they're happy with their partner but because they may want to experiment with a partner of a different gender there's people who may be interested in things sexually that their partners aren't interested in they may be kinky their partners not kinky there's a million ways in which partners can have certain kinds of incompatibilities or tensions that simply having another outlet having an, another entity in the relationship that is you know able to satisfy certain kinds of needs, I think can be really helpful. I think that you could even have relationships, you know, where partners want to be together or stay together, but where sex is just not really on the table at all. For instance, you could have a marriage, whatever you want to call it, between a gay man and a straight woman who believe that, you know, they'd make wonderful parents together and uh, would have a great partnership. But if they decide to be in a relationship, they're going to be celibate for the rest of their lives. So, you know, I think that sex bots have the potential to make different kinds of relationships even possible. And so I think all that is really exciting. Yeah, I think, again, one of the things that the discussion about this technology is making us have this conversation and putting sex and intimacy as a value. And I know in American culture for a long time, it's just kind of been shooed away. We don't want to talk about it. You know, a lot of schools still teach abstinence only. It's just something that is 
just not talked about. It's not respected as a part of the human experience, part of what makes life good. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I think at the end of the day, the first argument in favor of sex bots is that it will they will lead to more pleasure in the world, which I think is ethically a good thing. It didn't we? I'm looking at your essay. Did you say something about how people make more money? People would trade if they could have, I think they, it's something like 50,000, people would rather make $50,000 a year less if they could have sex once more per week. <laughs> yes, yes, I'm, I'm going to read the line. One study has concluded that for the average person, increasing the frequency of sexual intercourse from once a month to at least once a week offers as much additional happiness as an increase in salary of 50000 per year. <laughs> wow. Well, I would imagine, I mean, from what I've learned from some of the benefits is that I know for men, it's actually good for their blood pressure, for heart yeah. conditions, for women, because um, a, an orgasm will flood the brain with so much oxygen and with blood that it actually can help them like solve complex mathematical equations, <laughs> that there are all of these health benefits. But yeah, I would imagine happiness as well. I guess what I'm still thinking about though, is that when I think about the happiness, I don't think about it in terms of just the pleasure itself, but that, that connection that you have with the other person, that the robot cannot satisfy that. It can only do the physical part, the pleasure, but I'm thinking of happiness like almost in a, you know, almost in an ancient Greek way, that real, the, the happiness that has to do with the mind and the connection and the exchange and the vulnerability, like all of that where somebody is your person and they have they see you in this way that you know other people don't see you. And that kind of vulnerability and connection that you have with person is part of the intimacy and the happiness and being relaxed and being yourself. Yeah, I wouldn't deny any of that. I think that all sounds wonderful. And I think that most of us are seeking that most of the time. But I do think when you, I, I think it's interesting what you say about this sort of Greek ideal of flourishing. I mean, one of the things I, I really like about Aristotle is he said, well, you know, happiness involves a lot of different things. There's no one thing that's going to give you happiness. You need friends, you need a decent job, you need a long life, you need, you know, your kids not to hate you and all these things, right? And so if we look at happiness in that kind of broad complex way, we can see that, well, you know, maybe having an outlet for physical pleasure is just sort of one sort of aspect of that for many people that will be integrated into a broader vision of what a good life really is about. Yeah, that's great. Rudy, do you have more questions? You know, I, I do. And, and, and they might come off as sounding ridiculous, but uh, I'm not the only person that's kind of asking. It. It's very clear that we as human beings have can fall in love and have fallen in love with uh with inanimate objects uh, so it, it's it's very clear that yeah okay a human being can fall in love with a robot there was an actual uh international conference that one of the topics that they addressed and they want governments to address is, is this question this is a legitimate question can a robot fall in love now they answered that question with no they absolutely cannot but they want policymakers as they're, as they're, you know, as we're putting policy in as to address AI and the human relationship, they do want, they, they want this to be considered. They want the AI's feelings to be considered. And I guess part of the reason is, you know, if a human being is abusive to a robot and is whatever they're doing to that robot, you know, is that, how does that bode well for the relationships of that human being? And they go on. I mean, this, this conference was a, was a couple of years ago. I was in Europe. It seems like the Europeans spend a lot of time asking these philosophical questions. And, I, and I'm just curious, Neil, are you aware of these discussions that are out there about 
the actual robots themselves and their feelings. Cause obviously when I, I brought up Ex Machina in, yeah. in the first part of this discussion. I brought up my obsession with the Twilight Zone episode, The Lonely. Uh, my favorite novel is Randy Smith's uh, The Raffle. And there's this whole question about robots and their feelings with everything. This is a topic that's on my mind. Is it a ridiculous topic uh, or is it something that we do need to consider? I don't think it's ridiculous at all. I think that it's important. I guess I sort of have dodged it partly because I think it's very speculative, which it sounds a little rich coming from me, who's already, you know, making a living speculating about things that don't exist. But I, I think it will depend a lot on how the technology goes and what the technology looks like, whether we care about the robots' rights themselves. I think the thing that we can do right now is have a, a, an honest philosophical discussion about what our criteria for personhood look like. And I think that in this context, the research you brought up and the debate you brought up earlier about the moral status of animals becomes really interesting because it forces us to ask, what makes us cross that threshold into moral consideration? What makes us qualify someone or something as a moral agent? And I think that if we have the conversation about, you know, which animals and to what extent and so on and why, I think that will help. I think that ultimately the question will be decided by what happens with the AI and what it starts to look like. I mean, my kids love to abuse, quote unquote, abuse Siri to call her nasty names and try to get her to say ridiculous things and so on. And, and you know, I don't think I, whatever worries we might have about that, I don't think we worry about Siri. I don't think we worry that Siri is being harmed. So, you know, we're going to have to come a little ways before we worry about the rights of robots. I think there's already a big question that you alluded to as well connected to this, which is how the, you know, whether we model consent and respect with robots in ways, if we are interacting with them, whether that models those consent and respect in ways that are concerning in terms of how we then treat humans. Consent to do with the robots is a big question because on the one hand, we don't want to, I mean, if we just say, well, here's your robot, it will do whatever it te you tell it to do. It will always say yes. It will always be up for sex. That seems a little worrying, especially in a gendered context where we, we don't want people growing up thinking that's what, you know, women are like, that they just always say yes and always are up for sex and they don't have to be considered as agents. Uh, on the other hand, I mean, some people have suggested, well, we could program the robot's personality so that sometimes they're not into it or sometimes they say no. But then it's like, well, is that worse? Because then what if people just ignore that? We're just going to give them something that they can abuse and something whose consent they can ignore. So I don't think we've got a really good model of how to figure out what consent should look like coming from the robots just in terms of, you know, what we want to model for other people. Yeah, it's fascinating, right? Because there's plenty of people out there, plenty of organizations out there that fight on behalf of the rights of animals. You got PETA, you got the Humane Society. I donate tons of money to those organizations. I'm not aware yet, Neil, if there is an organization that's uh, been put together that's going to fight for AI's rights but that sounds like the great tagline to a science fiction novel. Am I wrong that it doesn't <laughs> exist? Or I'm just curious, are you aware of anything out there like this? There's, there are campaigns against sex robots. They're not based on these sorts of concerns. Uh, there, there's something called the campaign against sex robots. Um, hmm. But they're more worried about that other issue I mentioned, which is how this will affect our, the way we treat other people. I mean, the person who found it is worried that this will create a model of, you know, that we will apply 
apply the model of sex robots to actual living people and specifically to women. Is there an AI rights movement right now? I don't, I'm not aware of one. You're absolutely right. I think there are a million potential novels and TV shows that could come out of that. So Hollywood, listen up. Can I, can I just say, by the way, can I interject a random thing? There's been a lot of treatment of uh, sex bots in Hollywood and in the media. They're all so serious. Oh my God. There's a, couple of, there's a couple of exceptions, but I just wish we could lighten up on it a bit. I mean, again, Whitney Cummings has her sex robot and it's hilarious, but mostly it's all these sort of deep, dark, metaphysical horror stories. And I sort of wish we could just do a little bit more comedy about it. Maybe. Do you think, I think if I'm hearing you correctly, Neil, that uh, yes, yes, we can have science fiction stories about AI rights and all that ridiculousness, but it sounds like you're asking Will Ferrell to do a sex <laughs> bot comedy film, a buddy film. Is that, is that what you're asking seems for like you'd it, like some more like, comedy seems like an easy pitch if we can have clint eastwood and a monkey sure will ferrell and a sex bot sounds like a good pitch to me <laughs> gwen, gwen what say you are is there not enough comedy with sex bots you know what i what i'm thinking of is that i'm thinking about a different topic in science that has to do with genetic engineering and whenever there is uh, some sort of a film about it is always dark it's always a bad idea. And I think that comes from Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. It's always something that's bad. And I think that I now, Neil, now that you said that, I think that that's true. The way that we talk about sex bots is that it's always kind of dark. It's almost as though the writers are warning. And I think it comes from the same thing that there's this idea of what you're not allowed, like you're not allowed to play God. And I guess creating AI in a way is doing that, that you're not allowed to interfere with that. And I think that that's the underscoring theme of why they all come out really, really dark. Yeah, that makes sense. That's interesting in that context. You're right. That there's, there's certainly a long tradition of that. You know what I'm thinking? This is back to the, the issue of relationships or how you learn. So um, that example of having, you know, the robot who you know, a building consent in or whatnot, or, you know, in a real life relationship that there's discrepancy of desires, like you said, you know, maybe one person wants to, you know, get started and then the other person doesn't. And then what I think you do though, is that you learn from that because maybe the other person isn't in the mood because let's say they had a crap day at work. Right. And, or maybe, maybe you've said something and you hurt their feelings and you were unaware of it. So it's like that moment of relating of saying like, Hey baby, let's get started or whatever. And then the other person declines is actually an opportunity for you to learn. Maybe you weren't being a good listener or maybe you were being a terrible partner and then you grow from that. But if you just have the sex spot, then there isn't that opportunity for learning more about yourself. I mean, maybe I can tie in a couple of themes that we've talked about, because you already sort of talked about the limitations of sex education as it exists right now, mm -hmm. maybe especially in the United States. And I, you know, I had mentioned that a lot of the concerns about sex bot come down to design and making sure there's ethical design. I mean, I think there's a lot of potential to have sex robots that are educational in various ways, that teach healthy notions of consent, that teach, you know, all kinds of ideas about sexuality, and, you know, maybe teach healthy body images and so on. I think if we design them right, I think we can turn that concern maybe a little bit on its head yeah. and say, you know, maybe, maybe sex robots are a way, because we've got a problem right now. I mean, we know that for sure. I mean, we know that lots of young people are growing up with very unhealthy ideas about what relationships should look like, what sex should look like, what consent should look like. And so maybe if we get this technology right, we can find an opportunity to start modeling some really healthy ideas about all that. Oh, I love that. I think that's a good place to wrap up. What do you think, Rudy? 
Yeah, no, I, I mean, we could continue down all these many, many different paths of like for, for forever. I mean, I'm, I'm obsessed with this topic. I, <laughs> I really am. I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm not kidding. Like all those movies that we, we didn't even talk about Steven Spielberg's AI and all the interest of that. I mean, this, this is, this stuff has happened. It's already a multi-billion dollar industry. And I think we're going to be hearing more and more about it. I love that we, we came at this in, in the right approach. We came at it from, well, what could be good from it? I like that we did focus on the good rather than yeah. the nefarious. Because it, 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 it's true. It's very easy to talk about all the bad things that can happen when you're talking about sex robots and, and all the, the bad things that bad people will, will do to those sex robots. And unfortunately, it would probably do to other people because that was going to happen. This has made me think. I have tended to, to really try to divorce my thinking away from the sex with the robots and thinking about it as a good possible solution for, for the elderly. I'd, I'd like to call it a companion ro- robot or a companion bot or a pal bot. or so. I really do believe that as we are going to continue to live longer, as I, I want to live forever, I will probably wind up with a, with a robot in my life if I'm around for another 100 or 50 years because they'll be, they'll be programmed to like me. So I'm, I'm glad oh that. That we're planting the seeds now for, you know, think about this as, as a solution to some problems. So well, thanks for that, Neil. Yeah, yeah, Neil, I really like that you just, what you said, that there's that potential that they are, they are learning opportunities that, yeah, I really, really like that, that you said that about learning about different body types and different types of pleasure and that it can be an educational tool. Yeah, and I guess I would just, maybe if I can insert something here in closing, which is that, you know, I, I have had a certain amount of media coverage of my research, and it tends to be pretty alarmist and pretty one-dimensional. And so I think that if we're going to get sex robots right, it's going to involve things like this podcast, where people are really willing to dig into the complexities of this issue and look at both sides in a kind of calm and impartial way. So I think that, you know, you guys are really doing a, doing a great service when it comes to that. Wait, are you saying that we might be the beginning of an AI nonprofit organization. Are we, are we watching out for the future of AI? Is this the beginning? Did this just start right here? Is, is this sure. the beginning of the sci-fi novel? Sure, yeah. Make sure you put me on the mailing list. <laughs> Gwen, Gwen, I got a business proposition for okay. you. We got to talk about this. We'll get Neil as a, we'll get Neil on our board of advisors. It'll be perfect. <laughs> That's awesome. Neil, how can people get in touch with you? Well, um, I do occasionally go on Twitter. I'm at Moral Lust. And there are certainly also... How is that handle available? That is like the best. <laughs> handle ever <laughs> yeah so and uh and they're welcome I'm, neilmacarthur.com is my website there's a contact form on there they can see my published work some of my other interviews and yeah they can just reach out oh that's great i'm gonna link that in the show notes thank you so much for your time this was just really a delight and i'm definitely sharing this interview with with my students after they read your essay it's just really really lovely to talk to you well that sounds great thanks so much Thank great, you. great, great, Neil. Seriously, man, I hope we can we can have you on again. I think that robots and, and sex with robots. I, I really believe that we're going to be talking about this topic a lot in the future. So it's awesome that we have an expert on it. So thanks. <laughs> thanks so much. Take All care. right. Have a good day, Neil. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening. Check out the show notes to learn more about Neil's work on the ethics of sex bots. And if you'd like to support the show, we're on Patreon at patreon.com slash good is in the details. We have good extra stuff there. And we're also on Facebook. We're on Instagram at good is in the details pod. And if you'd like to sponsor a show or get in touch with us about advertising, good is in the details pod at gmail.com. Okay. Until next time.
Bye.